Hello and welcome to yet another episode of CX Conversations. This is your host Vivek bringing you CX lessons from CX leaders from around the world. Today in the CX Conversations, we are talking about managing customer experience in the B2B enterprise world. Joining me is our guest Morris Fitzgerald, erstwhile VP of customer experience at HP and HP Enterprise Software. Morris has over three decades of experience in leadership, strategy and operations roles at HP and Compaq. Originally from Ireland, he is currently settled in Geneva, Switzerland, where he also founded his CX consulting firm, Morris Fitzgerald Consulting. He has authored four amazing books on customer experience management, and as if that wasn't enough, Morris is also an active keynote speaker, lecturer, trainer, and coach for customer experience improvement. Morris is one of the most active and responsive CX leaders on LinkedIn, and that's exactly where him and I met. While most of us gave up on LinkedIn groups, Morris's consistent effort in improving the quality of members has grown the customer experience management group on LinkedIn into a community of 100,000 plus people. Morris, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making the time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. To get started, Morris, tell us a bit about your journey and how did you make your way into CX management? Was it a deliberate choice or did it happen by chance? Uh, I guess there was a bit of both. Um, at one point in the distant past, I was working in the clothing industry for Wrangler Jeans. And I had moved to Paris and I was the quality and engineering manager for France, the Benelux in Italy. And I had a strange and, in hindsight, wonderful experience. Um, we were in the middle of the invention of stonewashing of genes, you know, the process by which you wear out genes partially before, uh, before you sell them. And I decided spontaneously that rather than developing everything on our own, that we should go and ask uh, some of the largest customers what they actually wanted, what they thought of us and what they wanted us to improve. Um, I was uh, an engineering and quality person, so even I thought that I knew the answers. My boss thought that he already knew the answers. My corporate colleagues in Greensboro, North Carolina thought they understood everything. They said, hmm, no need to ask. We know that what the customers want is that the stitching be very good, that the, that the rivets on the jeans shouldn't fall out, that the cloth should be very high quality. And by the way, you're ruining the cloth with the, this new stonewashing process. You should really stop that. And in short, I ignored all of that and went out to at the largest, about 10 of the largest boutiques in Paris that were buying our stuff. And I just asked them, what do you think of us and what could we do better? And the answers that came back were different from anything that I uh, expected and different from what anyone else uh, in the corporation expected. At the top of their list, they said, the thing that matters the most is that if you tell us you're going to deliver on a Thursday morning, that you need to deliver on a Thursday morning. 
because there's just a few of us here and if a truck arrives with a whole bunch of stuff, I'm going to have arranged for my family or my friends to come over and help me unload it, unpack everything and put it, put it on the shelves. And I said, oh, but doesn't it matter that the delivery is accurate? Don't you, don't you check it? And I said, no, it actually doesn't matter. If I'm being delivered on Thursday, the thing that's most important to me is that I should have stuff to sell for the weekend. If you've made a mistake and I haven't been able to sell it, I'll send it back to you next week. I said, oh, that's interesting. Anything else? And I said, yeah, this new stonewashing is a problem. I said, oh, say more. And they said, what happens is we get all these nice young ladies who come in and they say, that one there fits me, but I like the way that the wear in the fabric is in that one, but it's not my size. And they said, you have to make them all look identical. And that led to a process where ultimately I started up a, a commercial laundry for this stuff in, or helped start it up in, in the middle of Scotland where we could get very cheap, high quality water. And I mastered the chemical processes needed to make it, you know, thousands and thousands of genes look exactly the same. But the point about that experience, I guess there's two things. One is I learned that you can't know what your customers want without asking them. And number two, I guess it was my first experience of understanding that many companies that we think of as B2B aren't B2B. Um, many companies we think of business to consumer aren't, that they're really business to business. You know, the jeans companies, yes, you know, Levi's does have a few of its own stores, but most of its sales are through department stores and clothing stores. So they're selling to businesses, not to end consumers. So KFC sells to franchisees and not to people who are actually eating the chicken. Uh, so those are pretty profound sets of understanding. Well, after that, of course, I, I kept up the contact with that as I, um, when I moved into high tech, that's a simple story. My specialization in Rango Genes was warehouse automation. And I discovered one day that that paid double in high tech that it did in the clothing industry. So I interviewed and I got the first job I applied for doing the same job in, in high tech. In wow. high tech, it came by accident that I wound up in customer experience. I talked to my boss, which, who was the head of HP in Europe, and I said, look, this is the way we're doing customer experience. This is the way we should be doing it. And he looked at me and he said, okay, you're in charge, which wasn't my intention. <laughs> but That is quite an interesting journey, Morris. So now that you've kind of given us a quick introduction about B2B and B2C companies, could you tell us a little bit more about the differences in managing customer experience in a B2C company versus that in a B2B company? That's pretty profound, and there are really big differences. Um, but think about that not from the company perspective, but from the customer's perspective. I think okay. the most fundamental difference in 
B2B is that there isn't a single person who's responsible for everything. Oh, if you're B2C, if you're a consumer, you decide everything on your own. If I shop in my local supermarket, supermarket has self-scanning. You know, I scan my loyalty card, I pick up my scanner, I scan everything. I even check out on my own, I don't speak to anybody. You could say the same thing happens when I buy from Amazon. But when businesses buy from another business, it's much more complicated. A decision to business process outsourcing, which is pretty common activity uh, handled from your home country, Vivek, um, well, it can take years for them to go through a decision process and many, many different people can be involved. Um, it can be, you, know, you can be talking to project managers, you can be talking to procurement people, you can be talking to people in charges of different businesses. So, but there just isn't a single person who has the decision. A second point is that in B2B, it's really unlikely that all your customers are the same size and have the same importance. We think of this in terms of the Pareto rule. Oh, typical Pareto says, 80% of your money comes from 20% of the customers. That might be a safe generalization. I remember when HP acquired EDS with 150,000 people, the EDS business was about $25 billion. And, but to get to half of the $25 billion, it just took 42 customers. So, those 42 customers were far more important to EDS than, well, they were just as important as all the rest of the thousands and thousands put together. So yeah. that has a big impact on the way that you approach them. And typically you'll segment the way that you talk to and treat the biggest customers. You know, the biggest people know they're the biggest. They expect to be treated specially and you'd better do it. My teams at HP, the largest customers weren't sent email requests to do surveys. I sent people out to interview them face to face. And that's what they expected. You also do get a different dynamic uh, when you do that. So that would be the second key point, which is the differences in the, in the customer sizes matter a lot. Uh, another common one is that you, the people using the product or service often are not the ones buying it. The thing that we'll probably talk about a bit more is your angry customers will often stay with you, particularly if you've, if you've got a business that depends on you know, multi-year contracts or annually renewing contracts. If you've got a company that's dependent on your service and you, know, you make a mistake and screw up, the customer can get very angry with you, pay a lot of attention to them, you fix the problems, they feel a lot better, they stay with you because they think you've done a good job of recovering. That's really fundamentally different from, um, uh, from a consumer business where you, know, you go to a restaurant you get, you get sick at the restaurant you know, the night after, you just never go there again and you tell your friends it was a bad place. But it's, it's different, in, particularly in businesses where there are multi-year contracts and so on. Um, 
it's the very happy customers stay with you, the very angry customers stay with you, but the people who you never communicate with tend to leave because your competitors are communicating with them. Yeah, and with the businesses also, they want you to be successful in B2B because quite often they'll be spending a lot of money with you. If you go out of business, it's a big problem. You know, they, they want you to be successful, which the consumer people don't really care about. I guess that's all I'd like yeah. to mention on that subject. Yeah, that, that's my conclusion, and that's got pretty profound impact on the way that we treat customer experience. In customer experience, we tend to focus on the problems, right? The people who are yeah. saying they've got problems. Because it's very personally satisfying if you you see a fire, you run to the fire, you put out the fire, and you know you go home and you say to your significant other uh, who asks you what, how was today, and you say it was great, we put out a fire. You know? mm. um, where you know, dealing with this constant attention and effort that it takes to communicate and have a relationship with the people where there's no fire and there's no positive party, that's hard work and you, you don't really know whether you're making progress for quite a while, partially because of mm. uh, purchase cycles. It, somebody may have bought something from you and it might, you know, a natural lifetime life cycle may mean it will be another 18, 24 months before they would buy something more from you. So you don't actually Absolutely. know in the short term whether you're making a difference. And that, that's less emotionally satisfying than putting out the fire and going home and being proud of the fire every day, you know, the, the firefighting. I agree. In your recent article about the effects of price reduction on CX per se, You've written about an interesting research that showed that expensive products are perceived to be more effective. However, in today's discount-driven e-commerce economy, how do we get this message across to CXOs? I have personally interacted with business leaders who strongly believe that price reduction is the best way to make customers happy. Do you really think that is the case? If we have to, how do we convey this message to the CXOs that price reduction need not necessarily lead to happier customers? Yeah, I, I think it depends to an extent on what industry you're in. Just the feedback that I've had from that blog post a week or two ago was made me rethink my thinking. Um, because I, I think there are businesses or industries where price matters quite a lot. Uh, and there are others where it, it just doesn't. You know, if I can, you know, at the extreme, well, there are many extreme examples I could think of. You know, everybody knows that Apple is really expensive, and yet we perceive you know, a MacBook Pro, which costs double what uh, a competing Windows laptop of similar specifications would cost, is perceived by many people as superior. You know, the an iPhone will be perceived as marginally superior to a, a, a Samsung equivalent and way superior to a, you know, a Waiko or a Huawei 
thing which might be quite close to being as good, but the brand matters a lot. The buyers or the decision makers' perspective is they must have what's best. And the fact that something is cheap is perceived as it must be bad. So coming back to CX in B2B companies, given your experience, Morris, can you share a simple framework that can help design a customer experience management program for a B2B company? Um, so yes, I think I want you're going to need to visualize this in a couple of areas. Um, I, I'm going to talk briefly about two things in that framework. One is what it is you need to understand to establish your baseline. And then the second is what are the simple keys to getting your leadership support for what you then want to do. So when you're in a B2B environment, the first thing that you want to understand is, of course, what it is that the that how happy the customers are with you and what they'd like you to improve. That's relatively classical stuff. The second thing for many companies, and very few do this, is they need to understand how happy their partners are with them. And by partners, I mean resellers and implementation partners of different types. Um, so if somebody resells your product or service for you, you know, while yes, it's quite important to understand what the end user thinks, um, it's probably more important even to understand what it is the resellers think. And if the resellers run their own end user um, feedback system, well, you probably don't need an end user feedback system if they'll disclose the data. Uh, the, the third thing is to understand what's going on in your industry. So what are the developments? Uh, when I was being taught strategy, one of the memorable things one of the lecturers said was, somebody somewhere in the world has just had an idea that's going to destroy your business. And so understanding what's going on in your industry, what the trends are, um, both for the way things have been done up to now and what, what are the trends moving forward is important. There are external factors that are important, and most particularly, that's government regulation, government regulation trends. Oh, in Europe and anybody for all companies with any customers who are in Europe, the general data protection regulation has been a fairly big deal, and it changes the way that you gather and you use mailing lists and so on. If you have any customer who's physically in Europe, no matter what their, the nationality of the customer. Um, so understanding the regulations uh, is really important. And of course, uh, even though it's the place that uh, most people start, rather than end, uh, you should understand what it is you're actually capable of executing and understand what your competitors are doing. Uh, understanding what your competitors are doing, depending on your the country you're in, it can be really, really difficult. Meaning you don't want to be hiring former em employees of your competitors who have non-disclosure agreements 
uh, and then ask them to violate the non-disclosure agreements by telling you what's going on. So it's how do you find out what's going on at your competitors and what they're going to invest in um, so that you're going to make your fundamental decision. Your fundamental decision in customer experience and in business strategy in general is you've got to decide whether you're going to be better than your competitor or you're going to be different from your competitor. And both strategies work. Um, you may decide that your competitor is so much bigger than you that you'll never have the amount of money necessary than uh, to uh, overtake them so by trying to be better at everything they do. So that's where different comes into play. So how can I be really different, uh, give the customers something that's different and um, you know, crush the big competitor that way uh, because they'll take some time to notice because they don't recognize your business model and they'll go through the usual strategy mistake of saying, ah, that person isn't really my competitor and then uh, you, know, you crush them. The, the remaining thing I wanted to say about a strategic framework is when you have decided what it is you want to do, I think there are, well, I used to say that there were three things that you needed to do to make sure that you can get your CEO and your leadership support for what you want to do. And I discovered there are really four. Um, the, and one of the, f the things is really surprising uh, and matters a lot in big companies, less so in small ones. So if uh, the, f the first thing that matters for getting leadership support is do the senior leaders talk about what it is you're working on? If senior leaders never talk about customer experience spontaneously or never talk about the thing that you're proposing to work on to improve customer experience, if they never talk about anything that's remotely like it, it's really unlikely that you're going to get their support to, to move ahead. The second one is the thing that shouldn't matter but does, and I found surprising when I learned it. And that is, you need to give a name to your project that makes sense and makes it really intuitive what it is you're talking about. And I found this out the hard way. Just before HP acquired EDS, there was a project that nobody really understood um, who wasn't involved in the EDS acquisition, and I wasn't, um, which was HP services was broken up into three parts and nobody knew why really, and the explanations weren't terribly coherent. The real reason was so that we could integrate EDS into HP. But what happened was there was HP services, there were three components, and they said, fine, we're going to get rid of this thing, everything that's at the HP services level. And there was a corporate customer experience initiative called the Diamond Program. And that had uh, you know, several million dollars behind it of investments in automation of call center things and a whole, whole bunch of other things in it. It was a very 
cohesive, coherent program. What happened was that a bunch of finance people got together in a room in Palo Alto, and I was told this story by two of the people who were in the room, and so I'm not making it up. And in this room of exclusively finance people whose job was to eliminate the budgets of everything that was held at HP services level or move them somewhere else, the discussion was like this. Ah, the next thing on our list is the diamond program. Does anybody know what that is? No? Okay, delete. And it was gone. Where if it had Whoa. been called the customer happiness program, they would at least have said, hmm, that, that could be important. Let's get someone in to explain what it is. Right? So the name matters, and it should make it so that you don't have to explain what something is, and it sh should make it so that somebody would sound like an idiot saying that you should, be, you should get rid of it. Oh, here's a great idea. Let's get rid of the customer happiness program. Nobody can think that sounds intelligent. The yeah. third element is that you need to be able to deliver something that's worth the effort at least once a quarter. So if you, I'll say something that I got criticized for saying in California, but uh, I can say it here, and I'm sure I can say it where uh, most, but not all of your audience is listening. If, you, if your first major deliverable for your customer experience project is more than nine months out, you are not pregnant. You have failed the pregnancy test. Something is going to happen during those nine months. Something will happen in the environment. Management changes, bad financial results some quarter, or something like that, that will prevent you ever delivering your customer experience baby. You have to break things up so that you can deliver something that's visible and worth the effort and that you can talk about with pride every two or three months. Now, when Leo Apoteca was, was CEO of HP, I discovered that he mastered that stuff very well, but we weren't able to successfully advance the company's business strategy. And that turned out to be because he couldn't communicate it consistently. So that's the fourth and final effort, uh, element that I discovered. You need to be able to communicate the things consistently at both an emotional and a rational level. Meaning the emotional level is where you're able to capture the essence of what it is you're trying to do in a sentence that will make people enthusiastic. You know, without needing uh, mountains of data to be able to explain it. And of course, you need to be able to back it up by all of that. So that's the, the framework that I'm thinking of. So the, the things that you've got to examine, I mentioned six of them. Uh, I'm supposing you've got a decision process, and then it's how do you keep the the support, obtain or keep the sponsorship for the things that you want to do. And I described the four elements there. That's interesting. It's quite powerful, I think, and a, and a very simple framework that any organization can implement. As an extension to the same, can you talk a bit about the connection between 
the net promoter score and customer experience it is one of the biggest puzzles i am trying to solve in india currently right well for us uh, when we at hp we had the an advanced well still there still is there an advanced analytics uh, group based in india of course which um did all of the analytics over a period of 6 or 7 years on uh, what was the relationship between net promoter score trends as measured by double blind benchmark research and uh, revenue growth slash customer loyalty or customers staying with you in a contract uh, environment uh for us and for all of our major competitors over a i think it was a 6 year period in the main study and uh, there was one of the consumer businesses where the net promoter score had no trend no effect every other business commercial consumer uh, uh, businesses uh, it had pretty substantial effects i think what was it i think the highest effect turned out to be for i think it was storage hardware uh, but there was also an interesting aspect which was that there was a time lag and we were able to understand the time lag so the well like for most businesses the net promoter score seemed to predict between 20 and 60% of the business growth uh, or the let's call it the market share trend because if your nps improves but your competitors improves by more you'll lose market share um so it predicted the market share trends with a time lag so if we take the the business with the longest contract terms which is it outsourcing that was the business that had the longest time lag between a change in the net promoter score and a change in uh, the Uh, in the in the market share where change in net promoter score had a change in market share in uh, about in less than two quarters for consumer printers and consumer PCs you know why it's because the purchase cycles are much shorter and, and so on where in outsourcing Well, we always tried to sound sign outsourcing contracts for seven years, but there were always renegotiation clauses. But it took two to three years for a change in uh, in NPS to filter into a change in um, in market share. While I would highly recommend your books to our listeners, could you also name a few books that had the most impact on you and that you would recommend to our listeners? please also share what did you learn from each of these books oh, absolutely some of that will de- depend on where you work and so on from a business strategy perspective the the biggest things that have had a, an effect on me is a book by a south african called willie peterson w i l l i e p i e t e r s e n oh, quite a kind of dutch or south african name and uh, his first book was called reinventing strategy uh, he just di- he did a reedit of it with a uh, 
a slightly different name. But once you look up Willie Peterson, you can find both of them. The difference between his work and everything else that I've seen on business strategy is that he's been the CEO of a lot of major companies and, and uh, global companies. And therefore, what he writes about uh, is it just seems much more practical uh, the privilege to have him as a lecturer in a course I did at, at Columbia University and he was just absolutely fascinating um, so uh, yeah he, the name that he changed the book to was he, he called the, the his re-edit of it he called it strategic learning um, it is the first book of any type that when I finished reading it, I start, I just turned back to page one and I read the whole thing through again. Uh, the, se the second book clearly is the reference book on uh, the Net Promoter System, The Ultimate Question 2.0 by Reichelt and Markey, now, which I consider the reference, though now I don't remember when they published it, is it 2011? They have substantially revised some of the things that they wrote in it and the revisions and uh, updates are contained in the Net Promoter System podcasts which you can find on netpromotersystem.com. So there are updates like that the standard format they recommend now has three questions rather than the original two. The original two were the recommendation rating and just the question why or something similar. And now they discovered that when you just ask those two that promoters don't say much in terms of recommending improvements. You know, I give you a 10, why? Well, then I say something positive about you, but I don't spontaneously say what you should improve and the promoters are the people who really want you to improve and that uh, is the uh, that's why they added that question uh, then there are two books together which had the biggest impact on the way that I think about it um, ab about customer behavior uh, one is by Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And the other is by Dan Ariely. It's called Predictably Irrational. And the point about Predictably Irrational and the Thinking Fast and Slow is that people and people that we're communicating with are humans and humans behave far less rationally than we would like to think. And... I wish I had read those books. I read them both, uh, I'm going to say, five, six years ago. And if I'd read them 20 years earlier, or when they were first published at least, I think they would have transformed the way that I communicated customer experience stuff. The fundamental point that the Nobel winner Dan, Daniel Kahneman makes is that people have two systems for thinking. System one is the intuitive uh, react quickly system and system two is the deep thought rational system and his experiments showed 
that if people find the answer they're looking for by their using their intuitive reasoning, they don't bother with any of the uh, any of the deep thought. Uh, and this is really important in the way that you communicate customer experience stuff. If you lead by saying, now I would like to give you 20 slides full of tables of data and then we'll talk about the conclusions, you're really wasting your time because everyone in your audience will already have decided what the conclusion is when you're halfway through the first slide. You're far better off giving them a gripping single sentence incomplete but you know, emotional level conclusion before you start going into any of the data and then you keep control over what you're doing. They're, it's, they're fabulous books but the one of those books, they're what we call behavioral economics books, the one that's easiest to read is predictably irrational and that's the one you should go for first. I just guarantee it'll take, change the way that you think. Yeah, summarizing my 30 ex years experience of uh, 30 plus years in customer experience in you know, three priorities. The three priorities are number one, communicate, number two, communicate, and number three, communicate. That is the best lesson I have ever received on customer experience, and that is to communicate, communicate, communicate. Thanks so much for sharing that, Morris. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love this one. Thank you. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast, Morris. And I would like to thank you once again for making the time for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for, uh, for having me. And I look forward to talking to you soon. This is your host, Vivek, signing off from yet another episode of CX Conversations. Stay tuned till next time.